I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 5th, 2017. Coming up, an interview with nutritionist Miriam Kalamian on the role of a low-carb, ketogenic diet in reversing cancer. a look at some of the recent news in science. Gravity signals that race through the ground at the speed of light could help seismologists get a better handle on the size of large, devastating quakes soon after they hit. And detecting these waves could give a few extra minutes of warning that might save lives, particularly in coastal areas where people can evacuate ahead of an incoming tsunami. These tiny changes in Earth's gravitational field, created when the ground shifts, arrive at seismic monitoring stations well before seismic waves. But a lot of work remains to be done before gravity signals can be considered a reliable tool in the crucial minutes after a big quake. Recently, a group of European and U.S. researchers began exploring how vibrations from small earthquakes affect gravitational wave detectors, such as those used to find the first such waves two years ago. Many of the scientists had worked on earthquake early warning systems, and they began to think about whether earthquakes created gravitational perturbations and how those might be detected. The challenge is in picking up the gravitational waves, which are much weaker than seismic waves. In the study, which was published last week in the journal Science, the researchers reported many observations of gravity signals immediately after a big quake in Japan. The signal was most apparent at monitoring stations between about 1,000 and 2,000 kilometers from the quake's epicenter. At that distance, the fast-as-light signals had enough time to arrive and be clearly recorded before the seismic waves swamped them. Modeling suggests that the method should work for gauging quakes of magnitude 8.5 or greater, which are large enough to generate detectable gravity signals. The team is now hunting for signals that might have been recorded after other great quakes, including the magnitude 9.1 event in Sumatra in 2004 and the magnitude 8.8 event in Chile in 2010. From soccer goalie Hope Solo to volleyball superstar Gabriela Reese, Women athletes are pretty buff, inspiring many of the rest of us. But a study published last week in the journal Science Advances showed that prehistoric women were really brawny. Their arms were stronger than most of today's elite women athletes. The study looked at bones from ancient European cemeteries from 5300 BC to 850 AD and compared them with bones from modern female athletes. From planting crops and grinding grain to caring for domestic animals, Prehistoric women performed so much manual labor that it left its mark on their bones. Figuring out the labor roles among early men and women is crucial for anthropologists studying how prehistoric societies reorganized themselves as agricultural practices and technologies developed. 
One way to do this is by looking for the effects of activity on bones, such as changes in shape, density, thickness, and curvature. Most earlier studies assessed men's bones. This is largely because male skeletons are more common in ancient cemeteries and because the ways in which male bones respond to activity are more robust and better understood. The few studies that looked at women compared them to males. These researchers used CT scans to compare the shape and strength of both the humerus in the upper arm and the tibia in the lower leg among dozens of these ancient and modern women. They included specifically semi-elite rowers, rugby players, and endurance runners, as well as sedentary non-athletes. They screened the participants to exclude anyone with injuries or illnesses that might affect their bones. They found that prehistoric women's upper arm bones almost uniformly contain more changes associated with load-bearing activities. Bronze Age women were disproportionately strong, they say, indicating that their behaviors were dominated by intense and repetitive manual labor. While we may not know the specific activities the women performed, the findings show a substantial role for women in shouldering the burdens of a new way of life in Central Europe. Tonight, at 6.30, Denver's Café Scientifique meets at the Blake Street Tavern. Jeff Blackburn, a Ph.D., a senior scientist at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, will talk about graphene, specifically What will graphene be useful for in the years to come? And what is graphene again? Graphene is a single-layer material made entirely of carbon that is only one atom thick. In his presentation, Jeff will give an introduction to how scientists make graphene in the lab and study its impressive properties. He'll also discuss what types of applications graphene could potentially be used for including batteries, photo detectors, cell phones, and sensors, and some applications where graphene might not make the cut, despite some early hopes that it would. But never fear, graphene has a plethora of ultra-thin cousins that he'll briefly discuss that may pick up the slack in these devices. Ultimately, graphene is one example of a broad array of nanomaterials that may give us the next generation of faster, smaller, and more efficient devices. Come before 6 p.m. if you want to get something to eat. They end around 8 p.m. The Blake Street Tavern is at 2301 Blake Street, close to Coors Field, so parking is available in an adjacent lot or at meters on the street. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science received its largest ever donation of dinosaur fossils this month. More than 6,000 bones of Edmontosaurus from eastern Wyoming. The collection, assembled during several years of excavation by the Hankia family of Danville, Kentucky, includes skulls, vertebrae, and limbs from dinosaurs of varying ages. Edmontosaurus was a duck-billed dinosaur that lived in western North America at the end of the Cretaceous period, between 68 and 66 million years ago. They were herbivores that grew to more than 40 feet long. The fossils in this donation came from a massive bone bed where the animals were likely buried by a sudden flood event in eastern Wyoming nearly 67 million years ago. The fossils join others at the museum in what is rapidly becoming one of the best dinosaur fossil collections in the country, including specimens recently recovered from Montana, North and South Dakota, New Mexico, Utah, and Metro Denver. 
Many of the fossils will require careful preparation in the museum's labs for both research and future programs and exhibits. Several spectacular blocks of bones and teeth will be on display at the Dinosaur Gulch Play Area at Cherry Creek Shopping Center starting December 2nd and through January 15, 2018. The museum is hosting the traveling exhibition Ultimate Dinosaurs, which includes a fossil prep lab where guests can try out fossil preparation techniques. This morning, I have Miriam Kalamian on the phone with us. Her new book, Keto for Cancer, is a comprehensive survey of the utility and application of ketogenic, or low-carb diet, in the treatment of cancer. Welcome to the program, Miriam. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. I think this is a really interesting new development in the treatment of cancers. And I'd like to start off by asking you to define just what a ketogenic diet is. Well, uh, there's all kinds of information about ketogenic diets out there, but what I like to discuss is the therapeutic ketogenic diet. 
And that can be for cancer and for other applications as well. So what it is, is it's very low carb, somewhere around 20 grams of net carbs or fewer, um, and only enough protein to serve the body's needs. And then the balance of the dietary intake is in fats. And this is a really low-carb diet. I'd like to point out for our listeners that aren't used to thinking about grams of carbohydrate, 20 grams of carb is only about 80 calories worth of carb, which... Exactly. Yeah, yeah if you... I looked at my um, my Cliff Bar the other day, and there's like twice as many carbs in a single Cliff Bar. So it's a radically low-carb diet, which is funny to many of us that thought we were being you know, so healthy when we embraced the high-carb, low-fat diet. Right, and and it is a, it is turning it on its head, that's for sure. But, um, it, you know, like I said, this is the therapeutic. There's low-carb diets out there for weight loss and for other purposes, but um, therapeutic as an adjunct or an add-on therapy in cancer treatment. And tell us why this is therapeutic in cancer. Well, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why. So and we don't have time to go into all of them, but at the most basic there is the uh, the fact that most cancers are glucose avid, uh, which means that they're going to take up a lot of glucose and, and actually run it very inefficiently through glycolysis in the cytoplasm in the cell rather than through aerobic respiration, which happens in the mitochondria. Yeah, most of our cells rely on mitochondria because they're much more efficient. It's kind of like, you know, I guess using a a turbocharger on your engine in the car instead of a really old-fashioned Model A-type engine. Right. And there are some cells, like red blood cells, that do, do rely on glycolysis totally for their energy needs. But other brain cells, like, you know, uh, other cells like brain cells um, can use not just glucose but also ketones. And that's where there's a lot of um, misinformation in, uh, in the medical community that's starting to kind of shake out a little bit as people do understand that ketones are an excellent alternative to glucose for the brain and central nervous system. And do you think, going, going off on a little tangent here, do you think that that use of ketones by brain cells is one reason why brain cancers may respond well to this type of treatment? No, but it's, it is the reason why you can adopt a ketogenic diet. If we didn't have ketones, to nourish brain cells, um, then, it, you know, we wouldn't be able to, to actually to survive missing a meal. Um, but we do also know that uh, ketone bodies are neurotherapeutic and neuroprotective. We know that from almost a 100-year history of using the diet for epilepsy. Um, and we're just starting to zero in on actually what the mechanism is there. But in cancer, what we're trying to do, what we're attempting to do here, is to choke down the supply of glucose while providing this alternative energy in the form of ketones. And uh, ketones are, um, they are metabolized quite readily, utilized by normal tissue, but not by uh, um, cancer cells. And so, you know, I think we just lost her.
This is KGNU, and this is the How on Earth radio show. I've been speaking with Miriam Kalamian, the author of Keto for Cancer, this morning, and we're having technical difficulties keeping her on the line. So we're going to finish this week's show with the BBC Science Show, but we will get Miriam back for a future show to continue telling us about her new book. Synthetic biology is a hot topic, though, that perpetually makes me smile. The idea that you can reconstruct the machinery of life to do things no natural organism, usually some kind of microbe, could achieve. One of the big players is Floyd Romsberg of the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California. Three years ago, his team showed you can expand the genetic code from four to six letters by creating new DNA components or bases. And this week they've shown that the expanded code can be read and used by the other machines that run cellular life. His paper in Nature detailing the groundbreaking work describes the hacked microbe as a semi-synthetic organism, which surprised me. What we've done is we've integrated an unnatural base pair into the information storage system of a cell. And so it has the cell literally grows and does its things with a man-made part in its DNA and eventually in its RNA, and it can translate protein with it. So it's mostly a normal organism, but it has a man-made part that's working in it. And so it's not a synthetic organism, it's a semi-synthetic. And so the starting point is in the genetic code. Normally that's the four genetic letters A, C, G, and T, and you've added two extra letters into that code. Yeah, that's right. So what underlies the code is the alphabet. So usually people talk about the alphabet being GCA and T and it's replicated and that's the storage of information. And then the code is the translation of those four letters into amino acids. You can introduce a new letter into the English alphabet on a page and it might look odd, but it wouldn't do anything. It strikes me that to do this in, I guess it's because life is self-automated, to integrate this in so that it's recognized by the machinery of life and it works with the machinery of life is pretty astonishing. Yeah. So, you know, the way I think about that, I guess, because frankly, we've kind of been surprised as our efforts to go into a living organism started in around 2013. We had spent 12 years optimizing the unnatural base pair, the nucleotides, the letters that form that pair, just let's call them X and Y. In the end, we made almost 200 different analogs in our effort to optimize them to find the best candidate X and Ys. And I think that one reason that it worked so well in the living organism in the end was because we'd spent so much time doing our our homework and really optimizing it in a test tube. So if I get this right, you've got an ordinary strand or almost ordinary strand of DNA and it's got the A's and C's and G's all along and then you've managed A to incorporate this extra letter X or Y in there without disrupting the chemical stability of the DNA, is that right? That's Yeah, that's correct. And then you had to make the machinery that would then integrate those bases into the DNA when it replicates and that works fine? Yeah, it does. And we didn't really have to do anything to the machinery because once we gave the cell the opportunity to replicate and store the information and then retrieve it in the form of a process called transcription and translation, the natural cellular machinery worked. I mean, nature seems to be very kind to you in this instance. Yeah, and it's very appreciated. But in the end, I think one of the lessons that we've learned is that it really wasn't that hard. I think that people have always considered the molecules of life to be sort of special or different because evolution has spent four billion years optimizing them. And in the end, that we were able to integrate a man-made part into one of the most intimate and central 
aspects of biology. I think in the end, it sort of speaks to the fact that the molecules of life maybe aren't as special as we thought, and that a man-made part can integrate in. So actually, one of the things I'm most excited about is that our work demonstrates is there's the potential for chemists to get more involved in synthetic biology and to create parts that are different than the natural system, and they're designed to impart those natural systems with new functions or properties. And I think that's going to be something that's happening more and more in the future. And what your new work shows is that that goes all the way to making proteins that never existed before. Yeah, so going the whole hog, that's what we're really excited about because in 2014 we showed that we could store information and now we've shown that we can retrieve it in the form of proteins, you're right, that never existed before in nature. And the protein in this instance is a form of this green fluorescent protein which people are quite fond of nowadays. That's right. So green fluorescent protein is a protein that naturally fluoresces, and so you can actually just measure the fluorescence in a cell and and use that as a surrogate for how much protein you're producing. And so we used that surrogate signal for how much protein we're producing during the optimization. In the end, of course, we had to then confirm how much of it was there, how much we'd produced. But the fact that we chose green fluorescent protein was so that we wouldn't have to purify the protein during all that optimization. So really the next goal And what we're actually already working on is to go from storage and retrieval to use. For me, Floyd, it's enough that this shows something of the magic of life. But, you know, people always will be interested. Are there particular reasons, practical reasons to do this? So absolutely. In terms of what we would do next and what the importance is, there are really applications that we're really excited about. And for example designer proteins. Protein therapeutics have become a really big deal in the past 10 or so years, but the types of proteins that you can develop as drugs and the properties they can have and presumably the diseases they could be developed to treat must in some way depend on how the protein's made, its constituent parts. And the constituent parts that proteins are naturally made of, the natural amino acids, really lack a lot of functionality, a lot of things that chemists might be interested in exploring for developing them as drugs. Those types of functionalities just aren't available in the natural amino acids. And so what we really hope to do in collaboration with a small biotech company called Synthorex is, and we're doing this right now, to develop designer drugs that use the ability to store increased information, to retrieve it in the form of new amino acids, new types of proteins that have new functions that enable them to be better developed as drugs. What's not to like? I'm always torn between admiration for the robustness of life revealed in these kinds of experiments and the smartness of the people trying them. In this case, Floyd Romsberg. There's links to his paper and his lab on our webpage at bbcworldservice.com. That was BBC's Science in Action. We linked to that show because we were having technical difficulties holding the phone link with the nutritionist, Miriam Kalamian. I'd been speaking to her about her new book, Keto for Cancer, discussing the ketogenic diet in applications for cancer treatment. We'll have her back on a future show. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show is produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Kate and Anna McGarrigal. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Beth Bennett.